1: Pimp Fox, there was a story that caught my eye yesterday about uh, expectations for technology and robots to come in and throw out all the humans. Vikram Pandit, who ran Citigroup uh, during the financial crisis, said that technological developments could result in a 30% decline of banking jobs. In the next five years, that is soon, and that is a lot. That is thousands and thousands of people. So here to give us some context, perspective, and perhaps uh, an alternative view is Kevin McPartland, who is a principal market structure and technology analyst with Greenwich Associates, which is based in Connecticut. Um, Kevin, so what's your take on this? I'd love to get your sort of in-the-ground observation. Does this seem realistic?
2: Sure, yeah. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to side with Jamie Dimon on this one. This isn't about a loss of jobs, but really a change in jobs. And I think, you know, we saw this, I think, in the first dot com bubble back in 99, 2000, when you know, electronic trading was really starting to take over and the, the trading desk uh, makeup was starting to change. It wasn't that you were losing jobs. It was that you were taking what maybe before were business school traders and replacing them with, you know, computer science PhDs. Now, obviously, technology and the market have evolved quite a bit since then. Um, but I think, we're in a, I think we're going through a similar transition where it's not just also in, uh, this time around, it's not just about the, the, the skill set of the people in those jobs, but where those jobs are. Some of those jobs, maybe that were at banks, the banks that are looking to increasingly outsource um, you know, pieces of their technology infrastructure, um, to, you know, sometimes large firms, but often, um, startups as well, that we're just going to see some jobs shift around, right? More so than seeing these jobs just, you know, disappear into thin air and have the robots take them.
0: Kevin, uh, let's focus if we can on retail banking for, for just a minute. I mean, is that the area that you're going to see the biggest job losses?
2: Uh, I mean, I really think it's across the board. There's no question the industry is being disrupted. Um, you know, everything from you know when you call for an issue on your credit card and you're talking to an automated voice, um, but right down to the institutional trading desk, right where there's you know less traders covering more clients, and they're able to do that because they have you know more sophisticated technology in front of them that allows them to service those customers, and those customers also have more self-service technology than they did. So I really do think this spans the gamut from. You you know, retail all the way through to the institutional markets.
1: So, when you talk about the disruption that's already happening, what do you see as the biggest technological development that will result in a mass shift in banking jobs over the next five years?
2: I, I, so, I think it's a, a back end phenomenon that we don't really see. Right? It's not the there's a lot of cool uh, stuff that's going on that's on the screens that's on your phones, but our ability to process data and analyze data, just the compute power that's available. Um, and there's a whole host of technologies that have made that possible. That's what we didn't have five or ten years ago. It's so, so much compute power, right? The fact that, you know, with Apple's announcement yesterday that they can do um, that amazing face scanning and, and within a, a chip that's in your phone. Right. Um, Take, think about that on an, on an institutional scale with a, an Amazon or a Microsoft or a Google data center. Um, there's just so much that computers can do with that power um, that just wasn't available or affordable five or ten years ago.
1: So let's just talk about – you're saying the shift in jobs. But when you talk about that back-end stuff, I think about Bank of New York Mellon. I think of some of these uh, you know, classic processing-focused firms that are big, have a lot of people. Are they going to go bankrupt?
2: no no i think they they'll uh, they, you know their business model and their the economics of the business will have to change as they you know continue to uh if we call, if we call it outsource more and more functions to computers Um, They'll be able to then take the people that they do have and push them further upstream to get their, you know, their customer facing, their their new business, their innovation. They'll be able to have people more focused on those, um, I guess you would call them like neck up tasks where the computers can automate more, you know, more of what can be automated, which I think that process has been going on for arguably for decades. We're just continuing to move um, down that spectrum where more and more complicated things can be automated.
0: Kevin, I got one question for you, and it's only a word. Equifax.
2: I mean, there's, you know, there's always going to be, uh, you know, where, where there's technology, the technology was still developed by humans. There always can be issues, and there's always going to be some bad apples in the world. But, uh, you know, the industry is resilient and continues to, uh, you know, continues so you don't think it's going to a problem to fight it.
0: You don't think it's going uh, <laughs> to, you know, you don't think some smart banker is going to say, you know what, maybe we've been a little overboard with all this technology, and maybe we just ought to have people dealing with each other.
2: You know what? It's a a good point. So there's always going to be a relationship component where people will trust people. Um, But, yeah, we've also all become more comfortable with technology over the last 10 years, right? You're you're comfortable putting all of your banking information and paying your bills online. And 10 years ago, you probably weren't.
0: Thanks very much. Kevin McPartland, he is the principal market structure and technology at Greenwich Associates. Well, the rebuilding in Texas, as well as in Florida, continues. And here to tell us more about the people that will do a lot of the rebuilding is our own Prashant Gopal. Prashant joins us from our Boston Bureau, home to Bloomberg 1061, Boston, Newburyport, 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore. Prashant, always a pleasure. Maybe just to start off by describing this industry, which really sort of favors mom-and-pop outfits, Uh, that are really expected to make a decent amount of money because there's a lot of cleanup to go around
3: well it's it's kind of an industry that's sort of flown under the radar i don't think people even realized it was an industry um but you know you have uh you have various sizes of companies you know the largest company in the space is a company called belfor out of michigan and and they do this reconstruction work around the globe and uh, you know they they've they're expecting record revenues this year of 1.7 billion so it's a, it's a pretty large company um and and then you have a mid-sized players like the one i i wrote about um a company called cavalry construction uh you know it the, the name is pretty appropriate they they mar- they kind of ride into uh areas where there are hurricanes and other storms uh, around the south and rebuild homes and other and businesses. Um and and then you have sort of smaller players. Many of them are sort of shady. Uh so it could be people who just show up at your door with a pickup truck after a storm. Uh and, you know, in some cases they might steal from you or or uh take a down payment and then leave. So not all of them are like that, of course, but there's there, there are various kinds of these companies.
1: So how expensive is it, Brashant, to rebuild your home after it's gotten flooded? And what's the process of, say, a Michigan-based company going down to Houston, getting enough workers and flooding the zone, getting in there and uh, and reconstructing things quickly?
3: Well, okay, so let me take these two things. So, in terms of the cost, um it it varies. So the the cavalry construction charges 6 to 8 dollars a square foot for the first step of the process, which is to um you know pull out the soggy wood and, and drywall and um uh and 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 everything else in the house uh rip it all out bring in fans and dehumidifiers uh treat for mold um so that so for a 3000 square foot house that alone would cost you about $24,000 um and then to reconstruct a house of that size it would be about 150,000 um for uh but you know of course they're doing, you know, houses up to twenty million, and those larger, more expensive houses are going to get much more expensive finishes, and that will be very costly. And so that's one part of it. And you asked about the company's co- the company from Michigan. So how do they go go about this? They, I think, they have eleven hundred people that they sent to Texas. You know, they they have seventy seven hundred employees, um, and so they 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 sent. I think at least that many there, and they have. Uh, I think they to start with in Florida. I think they were going to have uh, five hundred and forty, doubling the size of their existing force in Florida. They have people all over the country and the world, so they have already people in place, and they're bringing additional people.
0: Prashant, maybe you could speak about the, the the additional people that might not be available because of either immigration laws or immigration fears, or uh, just the disposition of the workforce.
3: Yeah, that's a that's a tough issue because we we've had a kind of a labor shortage in, in construction for quite some time now, and uh, so, so this is just sort of exacerbating that in places like. Florida and Texas, Uh, and and Texas, um, you know, a lot of these companies, including the the ones reconstructing houses and also home builders uh, and others who need construction workers, are are struggling to find people, and that's it's getting worse because of uh, sort of the crackdown on undocumented workers. Many of them are sort of uh you know in hiding uh I, what i've heard is in some cases if you have a family or say a husband and wife and kids um one of them one of, one of the parents will stop working and stay at home in, uh with the kids just in case the other you know the other one is uh is uh, deported uh so someone's home with the kids so there's a lot of a lot of fear um uh texas in particular there there's a bill in place that uh scaring people um uh immigration bill so so there's uh, uh there's a lot of reasons why this could the the uh the shortage could really slow down the reconstruction
1: and it will also potentially make it more expensive,
3: more expensive. yeah, yeah but...
1: who pays for this
3: uh so <laughs> in the case of flooding it's pretty much uh we have a uh, we have national flood insurance. And so it's those premiums, um, and I think they're they're going to have to they're subsidizing that with taxpayers, uh, and um, so there's that, and then you have uh, homeowners dipping into their pockets, uh, and I think that's the bulk of it in Texas because uh, you know in, in the Houston area, for example, only fourteen percent of people have flood insurance of homeowners, so the bulk of uh, these victims probably also do not have flood insurance, so they're going to have to figure something out
0: prashant then there's also the whole uh, in, in infrastructure and economy that needs to be put in place in order to support the workers once they arrive at the places where they're going to do all of this reconstruction
3: yeah you can if you think about it it's a it's a pretty uh difficult situation because there's, there there's a housing shortage so a lot of the homes you know tens of thousands of uh, apartments. I don't know the exact number. 150,000 houses or something like that were damaged in in Texas as a result of the storm. So there's a shortage of housing that just got a lot worse. Uh, and then you bring in all these people to kind of reconstruct, and they need a place to live. Uh, so you can imagine that houses that were not flooded or properties that were not flooded, those those uh, it's going to get a lot more expensive to live there. So this is this is going to be an ongoing issue.
1: Rashad, I got to say, whoever got into this business is a genius because <laughs> I'm sure that they will only get busier uh, and it's only going to get more lucrative or any of the real big property uh, companies getting in on this.
3: You know, I haven't heard about it yet. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, you know, it's a pretty, it's still, there. there's some big players, but there aren't that many. This company, Belfour, yeah. uh, just keeps buying up smaller players and, you know, there were some regional ones that they've purchased and they're you know so there are not that many very large companies right
1: Prashanko Paul thank you so much for joining us really a fabulous story and really interesting and I'm curious to see how many people actually shell out for uh, for full uh, renovations and making sure it's all okay uh, Prashanko Paul he covers real estate for us he is based in Boston uh, and he is a Bloomberg News reporter I'm Lisa Bromwitz along with pim Fox. Yesterday, uh, J.P. Morgan Chief Executive Officer Jamie Dimon spoke at an investor conference in New York. He said that Bitcoin Bitcoin won't end well. It's a, quote, fraud and, quote, worse than tulip bulbs, talking about the... most well-known example of a bubble uh, in financial markets. To discuss, I want to bring in Lionel Laurent. He's a columnist covering finance and markets for Bloomberg Gadfly, based in London. Lionel, uh, you wrote a column saying that perhaps Jamie Dimon is onto something and that Bitcoin very much won't end well and will end up kind of blowing up. Can you explain your argument here?
4: Yes, uh, I think that even though uh, diamonds words may have got everybody uh, excited and keen to point out how wrong and maybe even you know outdated his view is i think his point is basically that this is a market mania like tulips and that ultimately this is going to eat itself and collapse on its own before any regulator gets involved and my view and i look at bitcoin but also other sort of hyped up millennial Uh, alternative asset classes like uh, marijuana stocks as well and I just think that the amount of supply that's coming in and excitement around it maybe doesn't quite match the demand that we see on the ground and I think that is reason enough to at least be sceptical about this idea that it can just keep growing exponentially.
1: So, Lino, can you give us a little more example what you mean about supply? I know that you pinpointed the fact that even though Bitcoin has attracted a lot of investor money, you can't actually use it to buy that much more in stores or common uh, places of, uh, of, of, of buying stuff. So is that what you're talking about or is it something else?
4: So I think it's something else. For me, um, there's a there's a couple of issues in terms of supply. I mean, first of all, uh, there are new coins being created all the time. Uh, the I think there's something like eight hundred cryptocurrencies that you can track now on on CoinCap, and um, what's what's happening there is essentially more and more uh, new, increasingly. Uh, you know, volatile and potentially risky currencies are being created. Bitcoin itself uh, recently split in two effectively with a new currency called Bitcoin Cash that was supposed to improve upon the original. I mean, that that alone has been enough to actually have investors questioning uh, just how unique and valuable the... If you just look at the technology behind it, how unique and valuable it is. I mean, if you have hundreds of this type of currency and you can't really pinpoint any increase in consumer adoption, right? Because analysts will tell you that uh, since since 2014, there's been a huge boom in trading Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but, but maybe not at all an increase in using it on the ground uh, that's enough for people to think well if there's a he- if there's a heck of a lot of supply and not a lot of actual on the ground adoption isn't that a disconnect in terms of the investment thesis
0: Uh, Lionel, I want to just play devil's advocate and and, and separate these two issues for just a moment. Let's start with Bitcoin, because, I mean, there are new stocks that come onto the market all the time. Some of them are traded on exchanges that we know about. Some of them are traded on exchanges that you don't want to know about. New bonds are created all the time. New asset classes, new investment instruments are created all the time. And you only have to ask someone who bought a commercial mortgage-backed security what it's like to buy something that's new that doesn't have a ready market. We understand that. But isn't this a challenge to the way that banks operate and doesn't
4: it make sense that Jamie Dimon would say this? So you you raise a couple of interesting points. Firstly the idea that new coins, and they they call themselves initial coin offerings, I think in a nod to initial price offerings, right? I think the people who come up with these new coins want to be seen as new companies and IPOs in their own right. Um, I, I honestly see this as much more speculative. I mean if you look at the prospectus of an IPO if you look at the attempts to actually make some claim to maximize shareholder value for a, for a for a stock i just don't see that happening on on the uh, on the tokens on on the ICOs.
1: Hold on a second, because there's a difference between some of the new cryptocurrencies that are coming out through initial coin offerings and Bitcoin. For one, there actually is a critical mass with Bitcoin and there is an established following and miners and everything else. So it's not quite the same as an ICO tied to a company that is a startup that no one's heard of. Uh, So I, I guess I have to wonder, you know, is that, you know, there will be a winner from the cryptocurrency boom and there could very well be uh, one cryptocurrency that gets adopted and becomes the thing. And I think that that could be the bet, really, with Bitcoin, no?
4: I think we're, we're maybe delving too much into the technology itself and whether, it's, and whether it serves a purpose and the price. I think the main reason why we are talking about this today is that it is now trading around $4,000 and slightly below. And at the start of the year, it was $1,000. I think that if this was just a question of saying, do you like the idea of Bitcoin? Do you like the code behind it? Do you see a community behind it? That's one thing. The main reason why people are betting on it, speculating on it, playing it, I mean, I'm sorry, I think it's got to be the fact that the, that the price has gone up so much. Again, something like a 50% increase in transaction volumes, but very little increase in consumer adoption on the ground. To me, that spells speculation. And it doesn't spell the kind of quote-unquote good speculation where you think that something's going to be worth something for a fundamental reason. And to, to your other point, excuse me, about, about the banking industry and whether Jamie Dimon has a vested interest, well, okay, maybe, but, but I also feel like I think people people know that. I mean, there are there are plenty of bankers out there who might change their mind, who might even say, "Well, um, you know, I was very uh, dismissive of it a few years ago. Now I'm not really going to take a view." Um, and Frankly, I think it's totally okay, and it's good to change your mind. I think that the fact that he hasn't doesn't necessarily mean that this is just because he's he feels it's a threat to banks. I mean, we, we got to leave it
0: there. Lionel right. Laurent, thanks very much. Our Bloomberg gadfly
4: columnist, great
0: column. Check it out on bloomberg.com. Buy one, get one free. Yes, this applies to the iPhone 8 and 8 Plus, among other phones from AT&T. Now, AT&T hasn't said whether the deal will be extended to Apple's most expensive phone ever. That's the nearly $1,000 iPhone X. Here to tell us more is Shira Ovide, our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, knowing all things technology and Apple. Shira, have you already set aside a little fun to purchase your new iPhone X? 10? Uh,
5: I have not, I will confess, although I did walk by the Fifth Avenue Apple store this morning, and there were a couple of dudes in lawn chairs on the sidewalk. Maybe they were just hanging out on the sidewalk, or maybe they were already starting a line for the new phones. Can I just, before we get into any real substance, iPhone X is really iPhone 10. I mean, yes, doesn't that kind of, why, why? Uh, so the naming conventions are a little bit confusing now right so the um, w- properly the the non fancy uh, new iPhones should be called the 7s but they called them eight and then the iPhone 10 it, it, it it's the letter X, but they pronounce it 10. Roman
0: numeral 10. Roman
5: numeral 10. It's the 10th anniversary edition of the iPhone. Um, Apple's going to have a hard time convincing people to call it the iPhone 10 rather than the iPhone X. And just to annoy them, I'm going to call it the iPhone X.
0: Ah, okay. Well, you that's go. good because there's more free publicity for Apple because, of course, <laughs> right. they don't get it's enough true. free publicity. They win either way. Yeah, right. Exactly. You can end up talking about them. We'll talk about what's inside the phone. What What can you expect? Let's say, before we get to the, uh, the iPhone 10... Let's talk about the iPhone 8 and the 8 Plus. What is so great about those phones that they bothered to bring them out as new editions?
5: Well, look, I mean, the Apple does what it does every year, which is it it upgrades uh the current edition of the phone with more features and functions so the processor is faster the battery life is longer they have a glass back now which some people like for aesthetic and other reasons they'll be able to charge um wirelessly through these magnetic chargers which again some people like Um, so you know there there's upgrades to them although they are certainly more modest upgrades than the higher priced um iphone x as i'm calling it.
1: Well, the the, the post phone reveal is uh, is proving to be somewhat of a hangover. The shares are down a little more than 1%. And I'm wondering how much this is just, uh, you know, some of the excitement just coming down. I mean, literally, there was so much enthusiasm and the shares have risen so much. And how much is this uh, a bit of skepticism about this transformation that's going on from the phone becoming the primary point of technology, skipping over the PC, skipping over the laptop, Uh,
5: And and how well this will be adopted? So there's a couple things happening in the stock price. You're right that the share price, uh, Apple share price, has gone up significantly this year, forty percent plus before um, this week, and a lot of that is on on anticipation that these new phone models will kind of unleash this new sales cycle and kind of really uh, spike Apple's revenue growth to a level it hasn't been in a couple of uh, a few years. Um, The other issue is that the iPhone 10, iPhone X model is coming out quite late. Um, it's not going to go on sale officially until November 3rd, which is pretty unusually late for a new iPhone model, an indication that there's probably a very limited supply of these phones. They're hard to make. They have expensive Uh, complicated components. Uh, And so that's going to push some sales into later quarters. I think that was reflected in the share price. But to your broader point about the iPhone, look, these smartphones are the center of people's digital lives in many countries around the world. And in places like China and Africa, you're talking about a generation that sort of skipped over the personal computer as the center of people's work and home uh, digital lives. And now the smartphone has become that. So... Uh, I mean, $1,000 for something that people spend hours on every day, you know, you start to amortize the cost over the amount of time you spend. These look less like luxury items and, and more like must-haves. Uh,
0: sure. one of the things I noticed was that if you were to be able—I mean, I know it comes available, I guess, le- uh, next month on pre-order. This is for the uh, iPhone X. Uh, if you're looking for those iPods—AirPods, uh, I beg your pardon—the <laughs> AirPods, right? The the wireless uh, earphones? Just,
1: just 10 years Yeah. Back
0: um thank you uh, they're not they're not included in the box you don't get that you don't get the fast charger um, you do get the lightning cable, but you don't get a USBC. Um, what what is Apple thinking? why don't they put all their latest stuff in to their latest you know, anniversary phone
5: they don't have to right? they don't have to well they do have um they do include headphones with the new iphones they're just not the wireless headphones. right earpods to, uh, right they're ear- earpods um but yes they don't have to i mean look apple's not dumb they want you to buy all of their all of their things and as someone who has been to the apple store and gritted my teeth to pay $80 for a new laptop charger. I mean, these people are not morons, right? They're getting high margins on these accessory sales, and um, there's no reason for them to include that with your uh, already $1,000 iPhone.
1: It is an amazing experience to go to an Apple store and see a line extending down the center of the store with people with, like, $1,000 items in their hands, buying them, like, groceries. I mean, it is uh, just really, truly a remarkable um, market marketing feat that they have accomplished. Um, Shira Ovide, thank you so much. And and keep on keeping on with that iPhone X. I'll, I'll look to you to be the rebel. Uh, Shira Ovide is a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist focusing on all things technology. And my fellow skeptic, I love talking with Shira always. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.